Why don't I pray and we'll jump into looking at the passage that Hannah has read for us. Um, Lord Jesus, we rejoice in the truth that you rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. And we are here today um, proclaiming that truth yet again uh, in the joy and the knowledge that your resurrection has given us the life that is truly life. And so please help us as we look at this passage, as we think about your resurrection. Help us to find joy, help us to find peace, help us to find truth as we look at it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have a, a family member who passed away a few years ago. Uh, he's in his 90s, so, you know, it's kind of one of those expected things. And he and his wife, who had passed away just, you know, maybe a few months before him, they always seemed like the kind of couple that money was really tight. Uh, they, they, they never really had anything new. You know, all their clothes looked like they had been uh, bought in the 60s or the 70s and, like, stitched back together or handmade. You know, they all, that was sort of... They're sort of M.O. They never went out to eat. They almost never went on vacation. And if they did, it wasn't anywhere extraordinary. Uh, they would buy a new car. This is like, like this family member's thing. He's like, I'll buy a new car every 15 years. But he only bought the base model. So, you know, hand crank windows, you know, nothing special on it. And he would buy that car, drive it for 15 years, and then sell it and buy another car and do it again. And he did that his whole life. Um, so honestly, everything they had just seemed very old and very well used. And, you know, they actually just had normal jobs back when they were working. They weren't extraordinary, um, you know, people. They were just normal, everyday people. And so we, as a family, as an extended family, just always assumed that they didn't have much. Uh, they didn't have much money, didn't have much of anything. But as he was about to pass away, uh, some family members were getting their affairs in order because they knew that he was going to pass. And they found out that not only was he not poor, they found out that he was a secret millionaire. They found not million, but millions of dollars in bank accounts spread all over the state. And the entire family was shocked to learn this because of the way that they lived. You know, we sort of knew how they lived. They never had anything expensive. Their house was small and modest. And yet they had a bank account that is probably greater than the whole extended family combined. Like if we pulled all of our money into one bank account, they'd still have more. And it seemed unthinkable to us. Like when the news got shared across the family, there was like a collective gasp that we all heard from all across America. <laughs> what? It just seemed unthinkable until you looked at all the evidence of their lives. And for the family members who inherited the money, it was actually life transforming. I did not inherit any of this money, so don't ask me for money later. <laughs> I have none to give to you. You know, today is Easter Sunday, and of course, we're going to talk about the resurrection. That's what we do on Easter Sunday. And, you know, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was just like that, just like finding out that this family member was a secret millionaire. It, it, the resurrection actually seemed unthinkable. It was unthinkable even to Jesus' closest friends and followers, so it's not unquestionable that it would be unthinkable to you and I today. You know, unless like the life of the family member, you look at all the evidence, unless you actually look at his life. It seems unthinkable. And of course, we're not going to look at all the evidence today. That would take hours, and there are tacos being made right now, so I won't do that to you. But on the day the Bible says Jesus rose from the dead, in John chapter 20, there were four of Jesus' closest followers who they needed to be convinced. To them, this idea of the resurrection was actually unthinkable. And what we find in John chapter 20 is that Jesus gives these four people three kinds of evidence 
He gives one kind of evidence to the thinking person, another kind of evidence to the affectionate person, and a third kind of evidence to the practical person, right? So a thinking person, they need to be convinced of the truth in their mind before they'll believe it. The affectionate person, they need to, they need to feel the truth in their heart before they'll believe it. And the practical person, well, they need to experience the truth in action before they'll believe it. And almost all of us fit into one or more of those three categories. You're a thinking person, you're an affectionate person, you're a practical person, or some kind of combination of the three. And on Resurrection Sunday, that first Easter, Jesus says or does something for all three. And the Apostle John, who wrote this account of Jesus' life, here's what he says at the very end of the chapter. He says this in verse 31, but these are written, these stories about Jesus' life, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so the assertion of the Bible, the assertion of Christianity, is that those who believe in Jesus Christ, who trust in his death and his resurrection, that they would have life. They would have this life that is a truly a true life. A life of forgiveness for our sin, of freedom from guilt and shame. That we would have that today, and that in eternity... There is a life where there is no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more anxiety. So let's take a look. John chapter 20. First, let's look at the thinking person. And remember, the thinking person, they need to be convinced in their mind before they believe something. So they, this person needs rationality. Uh, Mary Magdalene, who we'll come back to in a minute in more detail, she's actually the first to see any evidence of Jesus' resurrection. She goes to the tomb early in the morning before anyone else, and when she gets there, she finds the stone covering the tomb rolled away. And so she actually runs back to tell Peter and John, and I, I love what happens next. This is one of my favorite things in the whole Bible. The two of them run to the tomb, and John, who, by the way, uh, is writing this story, he only refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved or as the other disciple, and never calls himself by name. So when it says in here, Peter and the other disciple... Uh, he's talking about himself. So John actually wrote this, and I love verse 4. John says, both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. <laughs> and then later on, like just, just as if to get one more jab in, it's like when Peter finally got there, he saw. And so John makes sure that for all of history, billions and billions of readers of the New Testament will know that he's faster than Peter. This is biblical rationale for trash talking. Okay, so if you need to do that, it's here. It's in the text. Feel free to do that. Now, here's what I want you to notice, though. Both Peter and John, they're thinkers. They both need to be convinced in their mind. They need rational evidence to believe that someone could be raised from the dead. Why is that? Well, because it's unthinkable. And before you think that these two men were going to believe in a resurrection no matter what, remember that they had actually seen... In, in the, within the last couple of years, they had seen Jesus actually raise three people from the dead. They saw Jesus walk into a room, tell somebody to get up from death, and they got up and walked away. And yet, and yet, when they get to the tomb, they don't believe it. They need evidence. And notice in verse 5, it says that John got to the tomb and looked, but didn't go in. Then in verse 6, it says that when Peter got there... He went straight in and he saw, and then down in verse 8, it says that John saw and believed. And so three times it talks about what Peter and John saw. 
But when John wrote this down, he actually used three different Greek words for that word to see or saw or looked. And each word gets more intense as you go along. And so when John got there, he uh, used the word for looked in verse 5. That's just the kind of normal word to, for looking. And so if your eyes are open right now, you are doing what John said there. You're just looking. But when Peter gets there, the word for the kind of seeing that he did, it's actually uh, a Greek word that you, are, you already know this word. It's the word to theorize. It's the word to theorize. In other words, P Peter didn't just look. He looked critically. He he engaged his rationality, he was thinking, he theorized about what was going on in there. And so when you think about Peter's look into the tomb, think about Sherlock Holmes. You know, Holmes, he never just looks at something. He's always theorizing about what he sees. That's what Sherlock Holmes is famous for. It's what makes him such a great detective. And that's what Peter is doing. He ran to the tomb in disbelief, but when he arrived, he engaged his thinking. He engaged his critical mind. And what did he see? Well, the second half of verse 6. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Now, what's the point of describing that? Couldn't they just say he looked in and Jesus wasn't there? Why, why describe this? Well, it's a really important detail. In the first century, when a, when a person was buried, especially an important person... They would cover the body in a bunch of spices, and then they would wrap that body up with linen, strips of linen. And then they would also wrap the head with a separate cloth, usually to keep the mouth closed, keep it from dropping open. So it was a way of dignifying the person in their death. Sort of like today, you know, you might dress a dead person in their nicest suit or their nicest dress, and you'll make them, you'll dignify them some way. That, that's what they would do. Now, it's an important detail that the linens were still in the tomb, because think about it. If somebody was going to move his body, that's what Mary thought happened. If someone's going to move his body, there's no way they're going to strip the linens off, because that's disgusting. Then they have to, like, touch this dead body. So no one's going to do that. And if a grave robber was going to come and steal the expensive spices off the body, they would have just stripped the, the linen and thrown it on the floor, and they would have actually left the body there. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have taken it with them. They would have just taken the spices. So the fact that the linens are still lying there is saying that Jesus wasn't moved and his tomb wasn't robbed. Something else has happened. And this is what Peter is theorizing about when he looks in and he sees. He sees the linen lying there. Notice what it says. It says, Peter saw the strips of linen lying there and the cloth that was wrapped around his head. And then it says two things. The linen that wrapped the body and the cloth that wrapped the head, they're still lying in place almost like the body had just sort of evaporated right out of them. They're not set aside, they're not folded up, they're not ripped off and thrown on the floor. So Peter walks in and he sees these things lying where they would be if they were wrapped around a body, but there is no body. And so Peter's looking at the evidence and he's rationalizing, he's thinking. And then in verse 8, John finally gets up the courage not just to look, but to go inside the tomb. And the word that John uses for saw to describe how he was looking, that's the third Greek word, and it's the word that actually means to know something with the mind. And so both Peter and John are thinkers. They need to be convinced in their minds before they'll believe. And notice what it says, verse 8. John saw and believed. And that tells us two things. First, it says that to become a Christian, to believe in the resurrection, that Jesus Christ not only live, that's an obvious fact in history, but to believe that he is the son of God and that he rose from the dead is not to put aside your rationality. 
It's not to stop thinking. It's to think. It's to embrace your rationality. It's to theorize. It's to think it out. And the first two people to be convinced that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, they did so using their minds. They theorized. They knew something in their minds. And so that's the first thing, that to become a Christian, to become a Christian is to use your mind. The second thing is very similar, and that's to remain a Christian. You have to use your mind. Remember the last verse of the chapter, verse 31, it says that by believing, you might have life in his name. And that's actually talking about a continual repeated action. To, to believe is to use the mind. And so to have life in Christ, to go on living as a Christian, is to continue to dig deeper and deeper into the truths of Christianity, to read the Bible, to learn theology. And the more that you do that, the more, John says, you have life in his name. And that's, in fact, why John says he wrote this book. It's so that we would know Christ and believe in him. So that's the first person Jesus provides evidence for. It's the thinking person. Now, the second person is what, what I'm calling the affectionate person. And the affectionate person, that's the person who needs to feel the truth in their heart before they will believe it. Um, I think probably the best image of affection uh, is my dog. It's a commitment I have to you as a church. I'll only talk about my dog maybe twice a year. So here it is, Easter Sunday, I'm rolling it out, okay? Um, my dog has a girlfriend. Uh, her name is Luna. And I have never seen an animal so affectionate towards another animal. Here's a picture of them together. Mine's the bigger one, uh, sort of with your head away, and, and Luna's the one with the head closest to the bottom of the, the photo. They are in love. They share deep affection to one another, and uh, we, we realized how deeply they uh, love one another when uh, we used to live just down the alley from uh, Luna's house. It's not her house, it's her owner's house, but whatever. <laughs> and uh, one day we were, we were taking Berlin, our dog, with us, and we didn't have him on the leash. We were just going out to the back alley to get him in the car, and I go around to the side to open the door, and he always follows me to the door, always jumps right in, and I open the door, and I look down, and he's not there. And I was like, Emmy, do you have Berlin? Is he with you? And she's like, no, I thought he was with you. So we go back into our backyard and we look in there and he's not in there. And Emmy is then standing in the middle of the alley and she's like, Ken, come quick. And we look down the alley and Berlin is standing at their back gate with his right paw on the gate. That is affection. That is affection. Now, if an irrational being, like a dog, can have affection, how much more a rational person? How much more you and I? Uh, and that's Mary Magdalene. She is a totally rational and thinking person. Actually, you see her reasoning out the evidence all through the whole chapter. But she's also the affectionate person because she still sees the evidence. The affectionate person still sees the evidence, but they need to feel the truth in their heart before they believe it. Now, it just so happens in this passage that the affectionate person is a woman. This could just as easily have been a man, and we don't have time to look into it, but John actually describes Mary as seeing the same way that Peter does. She theorizes. So it's not that she doesn't use her mind. It's just that her heart is sort of what is leading her. And so the Bible is not making a statement here about women being affectionate and men being thinkers. That's not the, what the Bible's saying. It's not what I'm saying. Uh, besides, no one is only a thinking person. No one's only an affectionate person. No one's only a practical person. We're always a combination of all three. It just so happens in this story that the affectionate person is a woman. And there's good reason 
that Mary Magdalene is so affectionate and needs to be convinced in her heart. And it's because of how she came to know Jesus in the first place. So when you think about Mary Magdalene, first of all, don't believe Dan Brown. She was not a prostitute. It never says that in the New Testament. But what it does say is actually something far more difficult. Her life was actually far more difficult than that. It says that at one point she was possessed by seven demons and that no one could do anything about it until Jesus came along and cast out all seven. In other words, this woman's life had been dramatically transformed by meeting Jesus. And by the way, you almost never find her in John chapter 20 without tears in her eyes. Read it again. You almost never find her without tears in her eyes. So what does Mary need to be convinced that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? What, what does she need? She needs something to go all the way to her heart. Because Mary saw the same evidence as Peter and John. She looked in the tomb. She saw what was there. She even saw two angels. And then blurry-eyed through her tears, she even actually saw Jesus, the risen Christ, standing in front of her. I mean, talk about evidence. He's actually standing there before her. She has more evidence than anyone else. But she needs the truth to connect not just to her mind, but to her heart. And I love the way Jesus does it. He does it with a word. He does it with a very personal word. He just says to her, Mary. And he must have said it with all the tone that, that identified him to her. He says her name. Now, what's so special about him saying her name? Well, a name is relational. It speaks to the heart. If you and I meet and I remember your name, that says something. If you remember my name, that says something. It's relational. And it's not until Jesus is Mary's name that she's able to believe. Uh, there's a pastor and author from New York City named Tim Keller, and he says that the way Jesus meets Mary in the graveyard, it's, it's sort of like a microcosm of one of the main themes of the whole Bible. And that theme of the Bible is this, that God is always revealing himself personally, revealing himself relationally to people who have rejected him in some way. He's always doing that. And first of all, he says, as much as Mary loved Jesus, as much as she admired him, was grateful to Jesus, she would have never found Jesus unless he found her. In a sense, she has rejected Jesus because she kept saying, or he kept saying he was going to die and rise again. He said it over and over and over again. She heard it over and over and over again, but she didn't believe it. She rejected that. In fact, in the story, she keeps asking everyone she meets, where is he? Actually, not just where is he, but where is his body? She's looking for a dead body. And she would have never found him if he didn't find her because she's looking for a dead body. And here's what Keller explains, that humanly speaking, faith is impossible. Only if Jesus Christ breaks through, or only if he reveals himself, will we be able to have faith in him. Because just like Mary, I, Mary was actually facing him. She was actually looking at him. But she still didn't see him through her tears. And that's a great metaphor. Do you know what that's a metaphor of? It's a metaphor of anything that's in the way of you and I seeing the real and risen Jesus Christ. Mary's tears blocked her vision. In other words, her belief that Jesus was dead and somebody stole the body was actually the thing blocking her from believing the evidence about Jesus rising from the dead. She's crying, she's sobbing, because she doesn't believe he rose from the dead. And so even though he was standing right there in front of her, she, she didn't see him. 
She didn't have faith until he revealed himself to her, until he said her name. And so affectionate person or not, each one of us, before we have faith in Jesus Christ, we have something blocking our vision of him. It could be your pride. It could be your upbringing. It could be something your high school science teacher told you that, by the way, to take that, you also take it on faith from her or him. The thing blocking your vision could be some trauma. It could be some questions. It could be some doubts about the meaning of life. Whatever it is, what we learn from the way Jesus revealed himself to Mary is that we will never see Jesus unless he first comes to us and opens our eyes. And that's what Jesus Christ does when he affectionately and without any condemnation says the most personal thing you can say to a person. Mary. He says her name. Do you see that? Mary needs the truth to reach into her heart before she'll believe it. And so that's what Jesus does for her. And maybe you feel that way too. Maybe you're the kind of person who says, yes, I believe in Jesus. If he would just show himself to me in some way, if he would just reveal himself to me in some grand and tangible way. Well, think about it. You're here today, aren't you? What brought you here today? Is it possible that the way Jesus Christ reveals himself to you is the same way he revealed himself to the first few people? Not in a grand show, not with fireworks, but in a small, personal way, in a graveyard, in a small room. Well, that leads us to point three then, the practical person, because the practical, practical person in John 20, that's good old doubting Thomas. We all know the story of doubting Thomas. Thomas, you know, he, um, he's not there the first time. Jesus actually appears to the other disciples in a room, and Thomas isn't there. And so the other disciples, like Peter, James, John, the others, they're, they're all there, but Thomas isn't. And when the other disciples finally find Thomas and they tell him that they saw him, they say, we touched him. What does Thomas say? Verse 25. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now Thomas has the same problem as Mary, but instead of his affections need to be convinced, it's his practical nature. Thomas's practicality, his need to see and to touch is equivalent to Mary's tears. Because remember, the practical person needs to experience the truth in action before they'll believe. And so what does Jesus do with Thomas? Well, a week later, Thomas is back in the room with the other disciples. And Jesus shows up. And what does he say? Verse 27. Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus says, if it's practicality that you need, then come, see, touch. But here's the fascinating thing. It doesn't seem that Thomas ever touches Jesus. Instead of touching Jesus, all his practicality breaks down. And he actually just proclaims in verse 28, my Lord and my God. And so there you have it. The thinking person, the affectionate person, and the practical person. Jesus meets each one of them in their particular need. He reveals himself to each of them in the way that will break down their barrier to belief that he rose from the dead. So which one are you? The 
thinking person? The affectionate person? The practical person? Where do you need Jesus to meet you? Now, here's the extraordinary thing about this passage. Jesus comes and he reveals himself very personally to four people. But not one of those four people mentioned here deserved Jesus coming to do that. Maybe John. Maybe. But think about it. Do you know what Peter's story is? In Jesus' moment of his greatest need, when he needed his closest friend to stand with him, he denied Jesus, denied ever having even known him. Think about Mary. Mary didn't take Jesus at his word. Jesus, who had done the extraordinary, had cast out seven demons from her. And she knew the stories of Jesus raising people from the dead. She shows up, and she's, she still thinks he's dead. She didn't believe he could rise from the dead. And Thomas, well, you know the reason he's not in the room with the disciples? It's not because he was busy. It's not like he had an engagement somewhere else. He ran away. He was hiding. And not one of them deserved to be amongst the first to see Jesus risen from the dead. And yet those are the very men and women he went to first. And that, in and of itself, is a picture of the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel is simply this, that in one way or another, every single one of us, like Peter, like Mary, like Thomas, has turned away from God and rejected him. We've rejected him intellectually. We've rejected him relationally, practically, morally. And yet God himself came in the person of Jesus Christ to die precisely for those who rejected him. That's what happened on Good Friday. Jesus Christ was crucified. And in his crucifixion, he bore the sins of the world. In other words, he was punished in our place. He, he received what we deserve. And in return to those who believe in him, who put their faith that he is the son of God who takes away the sins of the world, that he did that by dying on a cross and being raised from the dead. In return, we get what Jesus deserves. Not the wrath of God, but the love of God. He gives us a clean slate, our sins forgiven, our eternity sealed. That's the Christian gospel. That precisely those who don't deserve it, precisely those who rejected him intellectually, relationally, practically, morally, that's who he died for. That's who he gives his love to. That's who he gives his righteousness to. And even in the resurrection, Jesus proclaims that truth one more time by graciously, lovingly, mercifully revealing himself to men and women who rejected him. That's who he goes to first. Now, before we finish, the, the last thing Jesus says in this passage, it's really important. It's important to us today because look what he says to Thomas. After Thomas makes his proclamation of faith in Jesus Christ, verse 29, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, do you remember what we said earlier? What if you're the person who says, I believe only if Jesus would reveal himself to me in some extraordinary way? Well, here's Jesus' answer to that. You are more blessed. You are more blessed if you have not seen him and believed. 
than Thomas was, than Mary was, than Peter was, than John was. To Thomas, he says, you got to see me and now you believe, and that's great. But blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. That means that if you're a Christian today, you're more blessed than, than his 12 disciples. you want to be blessed? Put your faith in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven. Amen. Very few people got to see those things. Very few got to see those things in person, up close. And we think, oh, what a blessing. You know, if I was just there when that happened, of course I would believe. Oh, to have been there, to have seen it, to touch the nail marks, and we think that that is blessed. But Jesus Christ himself says to be really blessed is to believe having not seen him in person. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to offer you that blessing. I want to offer it to you in a few different ways. Uh, firstly, maybe you're somewhere on the way, somewhere on the journey to believing in Christ, and that's great. One of the things I always say to people that are, that are somewhere in that journey is that Christianity is one of those things that's best figured out, best understood from the inside. That you never really get it if you just stand on the outside looking in. So here's two ways that you can begin to look at Jesus, begin to look at Christianity from the inside. And the first is, is to read about Jesus Christ yourself. Especially if you've never actually read the Bible yourself, why not do that? Why, not? why would you take someone else's word for it? You know, maybe your views of the Bible and of Jesus have been shaped by a mentor or a parent or a friend or a teacher, but you've never actually read the Bible yourself. You've never formed your own opinion of who Jesus is. So don't take someone else's word for it. Listen, don't even take my word for it. Read it for yourself. All around the room are some of these, uh, they're just little New Testaments. Um, if, you've, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures and you want one, if you've never read for yourself. Take one of these home with you uh, and start reading. You can start right at the beginning. This is just the New Testament. So it starts in Matthew chapter one and read Matthew, then read Mark, then read Luke, then read John. Those are four accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. But get on the inside and look at Christianity for yourself. So please take it away. Um, it's for you. It's a gift for you. We want you to have it. Get on the inside and look at Christianity for yourself. There's a second way to look at Christianity from the inside, and that's to do it from inside a church. And so here's what I'd say. Give it six weeks. Go to a church for six weeks. Watch. Observe. Listen. Meet Christians. Talk to them. Ask your questions. You can do that here if you're comfortable. If, if you don't like us or me, that's fine. Do it somewhere else. But give it six weeks. Look at Christianity from the inside. Well, there may be some of you who want the blessing of believing in Jesus Christ today. There might be some of you who today, right here in this church, for the first time, you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who takes away your sins, who is crucified, buried, risen, and ascended. And if that's you, then, then you can do what Mary did, what Thomas did. You can say out loud that you believe, what you believe to be true in your heart. And the way we're going to do that is all of us who are Christians, we're going to read out loud together a historic confession, uh, something Christians have been saying out loud together for millennia. And so in your service order is uh, a little half piece of paper. 
And this is just a summary of what Christians have believed since Jesus rose from the dead. This is proclaiming that truth. It's, it's like Thomas saying, my Lord and my God. It's like Mary calling him by his title, Rabbi. The Bible tells us that if we believe in our hearts and we confess with our mouths, then we are saved. And so if that's you, if you believe in your heart and you want to receive the blessing of salvation for the first time today, then say this confession out loud along with the rest of us. And what the Bible says is when you do that, you are saved. Your sins forgiven, your eternity in heaven with Jesus secured. And so the confession is there in your service orders. Let's read this together. Everybody who believes this truth in their hearts, say it out loud together with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. If you are able to say that out loud for the first time today, what a joy. What a joy. And would you let us know that you did that? Um, Clint mentioned earlier there are some cards around you. Um, and if you, if you said that out loud, believing that in your heart for the first time today, would you let us know? You can do that. Just write your name on here and one way for us to get in touch with you. Phone number, email, give us your address if you want us to send you a card. Whatever it is, we would love to be able to walk alongside of you. And if you said that out loud, you believe that truth in your heart for the first time today, all you got to do is just put a little cross on there somewhere so we know that you... We know that you have said that out loud for the first time and have received Christ into your life. Would you let us know that? Let me pray. Our Father, we rejoice in the truth today that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and that for those of us who put our faith in him, our trust in him, that we have received the life that is truly life. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness to us in Jesus Christ. We pray this all in his name.